Welcome to Negotiating Brexit, the Views from the Member States podcast. This is a series for anyone interested in Brexit and the UK's future relations with its European neighbours. We look at viewpoints that are not always well known in the UK. I'm Hussein Kassim, Professor of Politics at the University of East Anglia and a Senior Fellow of the UK and a Changing Europe. And I'm Cleo Davis, Senior Research Associate at UEA. Today we're looking at Ireland and Brexit. We're delighted to welcome our guests Bridget Lafont and Mary Murphy. Bridget Lafont is one of Europe's most distinguished political scientists. She is Director and Professor at the Robert Schumann Centre for Advanced Studies and Director of the Global Governance Programme at the European Union Institute in Florence. Bridget was previously Professor of European Politics at the University College Dublin, where she was also Vice President and Principal of the College of Human Sciences from 2004 to 2011. Bridget is a member of the Royal Irish Academy, served on the Fulbright Commission, and in 2018 was ranked among the women who shape Europe by Politico.eu. She is a recipient of the UASIS Lifetime Achievement Award and was awarded the Ordre National du Mérite by the President of the French Republic. Mary C. Murphy holds a Jean Monnet chair in European integration and is lecturer in politics in the Department of Government and Politics at the University College Cork. She holds degrees from the University of Limerick and PhD from Queen's University Belfast. She has written widely on the EU and Northern Ireland politics, including the influential monograph, Europe and Northern Ireland's Future, Negotiating Brexit's Unique Case, published in April 2018. A former holder of a Fulbright Schumann Fellowship which she took up at the George Mason University, Virginia, Mary is currently the president of the Irish Association of Contemporary European Studies. I'll kick off with the first question. Uh, Ireland, we know, has a unique relationship with the UK uh, and is the only EU member state to share a land border. How did the Irish government respond to the decision of the Cameron government to renegotiate the terms of the UK's membership and hold an in-out referendum? I, th I think on this question, um, Ireland was pretty cautious in how it approached those initial UK-EU negotiations around uh, possible reforms that the UK was hoping to win. Um, Ireland was very keen to facilitate a constructive dialogue, but, but ultimately uh, the imperative for Ireland was that the, the UK would remain in the EU and that these negotiations would facilitate conditions whereby the UK could remain in the EU. So. I suppose on the detail of those negotiations, um, there were some suggested reforms which, which Ireland was, was happy to weigh in behind, you know, things like completing the single market in services and, and the digital sector. Um, but there were other issues, particularly in relation to the free movement of people and possibilities around limiting access to welfare provisions. They were much more problematic for Ireland. And they were problematic because you know, they confronted uh, or they demonstrated real problems for the integrity of the single market uh, as, as an EU perspective. But even from the domestic perspective, Ireland's history of economic migration and also Ireland's need for migrants um, would, would have coloured the Irish position on this. But I mean, ultimately, there were very significant dilemmas for Ireland here. Um, they didn't necessarily want to see EU integration rolled back by these uh, EU-UK negotiations. But at the same time, we're really acutely aware that actually pinning down an agreement, which was amenable to, to the UK government and to the UK electorate, that that was very important uh, in terms of helping the UK to support the Remain position ultimately. So um, their concerns were, were, were economic and political in, in nature. Um, and they were really centered, I suppose, in many ways on maintaining peace and stability on the island of Ireland. Um, but, but these negotiations were, uh, they were problematic and full of dilemmas for the Irish government. And, and hence, I think their very cautious approach in supporting the UK, but simultaneously towing the European Union line. Can I, can I just add to that? that uh, from the Bloomberg speech onwards, red lights started to go off in Dublin. The Irish understood, Taoiseachs understood in foreign affairs that the offer of a referendum was very high risk. 
And Ireland's a referendum country. We've had lots of referendums. We've had, in a very pro-European country, defeats of European treaties. So the Irish understood that this was a very risky political strategy from the beginning. And we're very worried by it. Uh, on the renegotiation or the settlement, I fully agree with Mary. It created dilemmas for Ireland, but the Irish wanted to to maintain British membership of the EU. This was a national priority. And the Irish were willing to be helpful, but only within the boundaries of their own views on European integration. So Ireland wasn't going to cross red lines for, for the UK. They also started the first Brexit unit created by any government, in, including the United Kingdom, was set up in the Taoiseach's department. So they understood how serious this was from the get-go. Thank you both for that for that answer. Um, Bridget, you, you mentioned uh, that Ireland is a country of referendums. Uh, when the UK referendum took place, some anticipated in the UK a domino effect across the European Union. Did the vote strengthen Eurosceptic opinion or sentiment in Ireland? Not at all. On the contrary, it drove support for EU membership over 90%, which is an artefact. That is... That is too high. One shouldn't expect support at that level. Uh, so, in fact, it hasn't made Ireland more Eurosceptic. It's simply made Ireland much more pro-European. But there was a very strong base pro-European uh, public opinion in Ireland anyway, because Ireland's engagement with Europe has been part of the modernisation. It has helped solve Northern Ireland or address Northern Ireland. It has impacted on British-Irish relations in ways that are good for Ireland. So it has been economically very good for Ireland. So by and large, the Irish experience of membership is a good one. Yeah, and I would I would 100% agree with that. Um, unlike the UK, I suppose, um, the EU, or at least opposition to the EU, it's just not a mobilising issue in, in Ireland. Um, all of the Irish political parties, bar some of the very, very minor fringe political parties in Ireland who don't even enjoy political representation, um, all of Ireland's political parties are, are pro-European to differing degrees. And we've even seen that with Sinn Féin. You yeah. know, Sinn Féin had traditionally been Eurocritical, I suppose, but, but that has certainly softened during the Brexit era. And we have seen um, Sinn Féin... Um, supporting obviously the Remain position and supporting Ireland's position within, within the European Union. So absolutely nothing to suggest that um, Eurosceptic sentiment has been, has been fueled by Brexit. In fact, quite the opposite um, during, uh, during, during, this, during this particular uh, Brexit period. And again, I suppose, unlike the UK, we don't have political forces within the Irish party system which have um, in any way successfully vocalised opposition to, to the European Union. Um, our last general election earlier this year in, in February 2020, um, we saw a couple of fringe political parties contesting seats, but, but they were roundly rejected by the Irish electorate. Um, there was no appetite for that kind of narrative and that kind of positioning. Um, and, and in contrast, uh, what we see is actually a, a strengthening of support for the EU based on opinion polling data. And, and even a glance at general election results tells the same story. Thank you both for, for the answer there. I, uh, it is, you, you, you mentioned that the uh, membership of the European Union um, was beneficial for the, Europe, uh, for, the, for the relationship between the UK and, and uh, Ireland. Uh, what was Dublin's response then as, as a result uh, to the result of the referendum? Its interactions with London, uh, but on the other hand, also with the EU institutions and other European capitals. So I think one needs to distinguish between the immediate response and then the longer term strategic response. So firstly, on the immediate response, uh, all of the relevant Taoiseach's department and foreign ministry people were in government buildings that night. They had prepared two messages, one for yes, one for leave, one for remain. When it became obvious that it was leave, then the system went into overdrive and it was uh, at every level. So 
the bank, the Irish Central Bank in terms of the economy, the government saying we are and will remain EU an EU member state. We respect the right of the British people to leave, but we certainly won't be leaving with them. And they published a very lengthy contingency document that morning. So they were ready. They, the system went into overdrive. Uh, there were there was a communication strategy sent to all Irish embassies across the world. Uh, they were ready, and the Thishuks the the, the made a statement uh, midday that that day where it was very emphatic: we we remain in, we respect the British, uh, but. The system was ready. Then the longer term, and this was a whole of government uh, approach, they had done the homework, they knew exactly uh, what the implications were for all sectors of the Irish economy and for North-South cooperation. And they simply decided on a strategic approach to uh, how to handle this. I would say in autumn 16, there was some, there were some in the Irish system, uh, very concerned about Northern Ireland, very concerned about unionism, and were hoping for uh, a London-Dublin settlement that could be offered to the EU. But there were others in the Irish system arguing very strongly from the beginning that Ireland absolutely had to Europeanize this issue, had to upload it to the EU level. And they won. And they won by about, I would say, they were winning all the time, but they certainly by December 16, uh, Ireland was going to Europeanize the issue. And that then led to a, again, whole of government, but extraordinary effort by the Irish diplomatic and political system. And between June 16 and uh, notification in March 17, at the end of March, the Irish had held over 400 meetings with their counterparts in the commission, in the council. I mean, they were everywhere, across the capitals. They were everywhere. And there was what what's what's been described to me is that they spoke to everyone. They spoke to the top people. They spoke to the mid-ranking people. They went in and out of the ministries uh, across Europe on every issue. So it, it, it was top priority and all of Ireland's state capacity was directed towards managing this. I mean, it was 2014 when the Irish government first flagged the possibility of, of Brexit and, and started to think about the uncertainty which was evolving between the UK and the EU in terms of their relationship. So it had been on the Irish political agenda, I mean, quietly in the background for a period of about two years before 2016. Um, so there was that period, that two-year period, when the Irish government um, and its administrative system could actually think very seriously and anticipate some of what might be coming within, within the next two years. And... In, in the days around the, the referendum result itself, you know, we had an emergency cabinet meeting, we had an emergency recalling of parliament, we had a statement ready to go, contingency plans published that day, um, consultation, immediate consultation with the opposition. There really was a, a choreography to how Ireland responded, yeah. and that was as a consequence of the preparations which, which had been put in place. And as Bridget said, that became much more determined, much more strategic, um, and, and arguably uh, effective in the period that followed from, from about autumn 2016. I mean, it really is a quite remarkable diplomatic and political effort that unfolded in the period up to March 2017 in particular. I, I suppose presenting and communicating Irish interests in the first instance, and then doing their utmost to ensure that those interests were inserted into the EU uh, objectives and priorities uh, around Brexit. So um, it was, um, a, 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 I suppose, a, a well-prepared and, uh, and anticipated um, response uh, to, the, to the Leave vote. Well, thanks very much for that answer. I mean, I'm, I'm going to move us on to the negotiations. I mean, I, su I suspect you've answered, um, or you've preempted some of what I'm about to, to ask you. But I mean, it was noticeable that the Irish border was was absent in the UK referendum campaign. It was, was an issue that was scarcely covered. Covered. It was you know, part of Project Fear. But even 
sort of distant. Um, and it wasn't there in the um, in any of the responses on the on the day after the referendum. It wasn't there in the in the joint statements. It wasn't it wasn't even there in the um, in in the meeting of the European Council um, in late June. So. Um, I wondered um, how did it move from from being there to from being sort of nowhere, if you like, to being one of the three priority issues. And you've talked about the effort. I just wondered what arguments were, were what was Ireland using? How did it manage to move the member states and and make them appreciate the importance of the of the issue? The arguments started from the premise that joint UK EU relationship membership of the EU was the essential scaffolding for the peace on the island of Ireland and the stability that had stemmed from the Good Friday Agreement. That the Good Friday Agreement had led to the dismantling of all of the military structures on the Irish border, which were many, but that the internal market, which was earlier in the 90s, had created the conditions for a completely invisible border. And I think one has to really emphasize the invisibility of the Irish border. The only way you know you cross is that you go from kilometers to miles and the road road colors change from white to yellow. And it is much more invisible than even crossing many continental European borders where you still see the remnants of the customs checks, et cetera, et cetera. So joint EU membership was essential to the Good Friday Agreement and its achievement. It was existential for Ireland because it was a matter of peace. And the concern, and it's often argued from some UK commentators that the Irish were very aggressive in pursuing uh, their interests. But the Irish did understand what was at stake. Uh, uh, The memory, the institutional memory of the Good Friday Agreement negotiations was extremely strong. So this was translating to a European level, the peace question, the stability question. And secondly, Um, I think that the Irish understood that they needed to ensure that the, and when you look at the language, that the unique circumstances on the island of Ireland were recognised by other member states and by the EU Commission. Now, the selection of Barnier was very important because Barnier had been regional policy commissioner. He had been involved in peace he understood the border. And Juncker, as a Luxembourger, also understood small states, borders surrounded by, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that the Irish did an extremely effective job in ensuring that the others understood. And one of the uh, striking things about the Brexit process that I have come across is the extent to which foreign ministries and diplomats across Europe understand the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, the visit to the border became almost a ritual. If you came to Ireland, you went to the border. They they understood this. And even interestingly, Chancellor Merkel, when she came to Dublin, when it was very, uh, when things were really difficult and the Irish rather than going directly into a meeting with her, actually brought people from the border communities to speak to her. And she said to them, I understand what it's like. So I think that that it resonated, but also it wouldn't have worked unless you don't persuade 26 countries and European institutions to back you to the hilt unless your arguments are compelling. And the Irish arguments were accepted as compelling from a very early stage. But the Irish really worked it. I mean, there was a pedagogical exercise, a diplomatic and pedagogical exercise. Like that's a really comprehensive snapshot of of what the situation was at that time. Um, And again, I suppose it speaks to the readiness of the Irish government and the preparations that had been put in place. So when the referendum happened, although it's regrettable that the discussion of the border just didn't infiltrate the wider British discussion, it was a discussion which was had on the island of Ireland. 
and it did form part of the referendum campaign narrative in Northern Ireland. So it, it was on not just the political agenda, but it also touched the public agenda as well and, and, and the public understanding of what was at stake here. Um, and there was, I think, an acute understanding um, on the island of Ireland about how membership of the single market in particular um, accommodated and facilitated um, the, 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 the key features of, of the Good Friday Agreement. You know, there was a, a fortuitous um, link between those two very different projects. Uh, one facilitated uh, uh, the other, an, an organic link almost. You know, that had been a subject of discussion during the referendum campaign um, and, and it continued to animate the Brexit negotiation period afterwards. And I suppose I would, I would again reiterate one of the points Bridget made there about um, the sort of receptiveness of the EU to these particular arguments um, and discussion points. You know, even reflecting on the EU's own history, it is essentially a peace project and prides itself on that. Um, so protecting peace and stability in Northern Ireland resonated well with that, that founding logic for the European project itself. And, you know, the EU since the 1990s had invested. It had invested financially, but also symbolically in the Northern Ireland peace process. Uh, so, so they did have a stake in the game here. And protecting the gains of that process was, um, was not just important to the island of Ireland, but, but equally important um, to, to key European figures and to the European project itself. So, so there, was, there was a lot that was happening around this period um, which dovetailed uh, with, with Irish priorities and key Irish interests during this period and, and allowed for there to be a receptiveness to them, which, which facilitated Irish concerns being accommodated by the EU during the negotiating process. And, and as Bridget said, the Irish political and civil service and diplomatic machine really did a, a, a Trojan job in terms of communicating and, and, and selling those arguments and doing so persuasively to uh, for, for their European neighbours. That's very interesting. I think a lot of things there that just aren't appreciated in, in, in the UK. But I wanted to ask, um, I wanted to pick up on the point about the diplomatic effort, because we've been talking about the extent to which it was directed towards um, other European governments. But there was also a transatlantic dimension that was important. Of course, because uh, the US was essential to the Good Friday Agreement. So Ireland has a very rich support network in Washington and across the US. And what I thought was very interesting was that the Irish had prepared the American strategy three years out, but only deployed it when things were getting very tough. Only deployed it in 2019 when there was a, when there was a determined effort to get Pelosi to London and then to Dublin, where she spoke to both houses of the Oireachtas, and then her famous visit to the border. The Irish held the American card back, knowing that there would come a time in the negotiations when they would need to, they would need to deploy the big guns. And uh, I think all one can say is that there was a considerable comfort in the fact that Joe Biden won the American election in November, because there will be no UK-US trade agreement if there is any damage to the Good Friday Agreement. There is no way it will get through the Ways and Means uh, Committee, but also Biden himself just simply won't, won't allow this happen. And I suppose the US itself as well has, has for its own part, maintained an interest in Northern Ireland specifically you know, they have committed a U.S. special envoy to Northern Ireland in the period since the, uh, the uh, Good Friday Agreement negotiations in the 1990s. Now, there was a, a, a slight interruption um, during the period of President Trump's presidency. Um, but for the most part, having that U.S. presence on the ground in Northern Ireland meant that the U.S. administration was well informed and 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 clued in to what the situation was on the ground, and it facilitated, you know, a pretty sophisticated understanding of the various different dynamics, um, and of of the positions of the various different actors in these negotiations. Um, so so the U.S. has has uh, has maintained its own presence. Um, but the Irish government, uh, obviously, as Brid Bridget said, has been very effective in terms of mobilising and, and encouraging US interest at critical points 
during the negotiation period. And 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 that's been essential, I think, uh, in terms of helping helping the negotiations to nudge along. Thanks very much. I mean, we'll come back to the the, the issue of, of the Biden victory a bit later um, in, the, in the conversation. But I wonder if there are any moments where it seemed that um, the EU 26 was sort of softening in their support for the Irish border. I mean, one remembers the, the remarks of a, of a um, Polish foreign minister, for example. Um, how, how difficult was it really um, to sustain the, um, the emphasis on, on the Irish border? I would say that whenever the negotiations were really tough and it looked as if no deal might, that there wouldn't be an agreement or ratification of a withdrawal agreement, then certainly the Irish issue, the focus was on Ireland because Ireland emerged in 2019, the backstop as being the issue. Um, But I think it would, there is no evidence to suggest that the support wavered at any stage in any important way. Now, there were times when the Irish were asked, well, if there's no deal, what do you do about the Irish border? Because the Irish had to constantly reassure the EU that the single market would never be threatened. So the nightmare scenario for the Irish was no withdrawal agreement what would happen on the border? Uh, so there were tough questions. I mean, I, it would be it wasn't that the others uh, simply accepted the Irish view. They did and supported the Irish position. But they always wanted to ensure that the single market would never be threatened through the back door from from Northern Ireland. But the Irish didn't want that to happen as a member state. So I think that throughout the negotiations, there were periods of high tension on the backstop because it was such a critical issue in the overall negotiations. But at no stage were any of the serious players, at no stage did any of the serious players uh, waver at all. And I would say Ireland had enormous support in the Commission at the very highest level and also in the Council. Tusk came to Dublin. He repeatedly said, unless there is a backstop, there will be no agreement, etc., etc. So I think I think that it held remarkably. Now, it's important for me to say that the UK government, from the beginning, pursued a strategy of basically isolating Ireland and trying to peel off the support. And I know this. I mean, this is not hypothetical. Right across Europe, they engaged in what was a hardcore press against the Irish view, basically saying the Irish are exaggerating, they're overdoing the border, it's not that serious, pieces pieces consolidated, and the Irish are simply exaggerating. And that was quite a serious diplomatic and political effort. It failed spectacularly. Why? Because people would just report back to the Irish what was being said immediately. And here was the fundamental distinction between a member state and a third country. And that was everything pivoted on that. The UK was no longer or about it was about to be a third country or was a third country. And it simply couldn't call the shots on the Irish dossier. But right through 17, if you notice, Theresa May conceded on citizens, then on money in the Florence statement. And she still did not concede on Ireland until she needed the joint report. And then all through 18, the British did not put on paper their alternatives to the backstop. They were constantly asked and never, ever, ever. And this is what one of the reasons why Salzburg went wrong is that there was a bilateral with Varadkar in Salzburg. And uh, Theresa May said to him, we won't have anything on the backstop for another four weeks. And he was horrified because they'd been waiting for this from from January uh, 18 and nothing was on paper. And and that was because obviously the British cabinet couldn't agree. So he went into that European Council and said, you know, there is no agreement on the backstop yet and there's no alternative being offered. And then the British did all the alternative arrangements stuff, the fairies stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it really is important 
to emphasize that Britain didn't take this lying down. I mean, they, they, didn't, they didn't accept, they attempted to counteract with all of their diplomatic and political capacity, the Irish view on this. And that was because, as we all know, there was an incompatibility in their preferences. No border in Ireland, no single market, no customs union. So they never, ever, ever came to terms with the problem of their preferences. There was no squaring the circle. Yeah, and that's just been the sort of most regrettable feature of, of these Brexit negotiations, that, that incompatibility was, was never confronted, never confronted um, effectively um, during these negotiations. And I think for the other 27 member states, you know, they're lining up behind the Irish position. Um, it, it, it was about all those things that Bridget talked about. But, but I think as well for individual EU member states, they had their own strategic interests to think about as well. And particularly in terms of the possibility of contagion, um, fueling Eurosceptic movements within, within their own parties and um, concerns are within their own parties and their own systems. Um, and, and also concerns about the existential threat um, that Brexit potentially posed and, and staving that off. And um, supporting Ireland was, was a key way of selling the benefits of EU membership as a whole. Yep. Um, and and, and doing, so, um, doing so really stridently during this period as well. Um, so it, it wasn't just about protecting Ireland. It was also about protecting the integrity of the European Union and the single market. And uh, many member states had a strategic interest in making, in, in that messaging and, and in communicating that messaging very vociferously, not just to the broad EU audience, but to their own domestic audiences as well. So I think that's another dimension of how yep. we understand Ireland's, uh, uh, the support that Ireland enjoyed during the negotiation period. Can I just add to what Mary has said, because it really is important uh, what she's just said. The other dimension was the EU has 22 small states. And so this was also, Juncker said at several times during the negotiations privately, that how can we face any small state if we let Ireland loose? So it was also the protection of small states really mattered in the system and to Juncker in particular. No, it's a really, it's a really, um, really interesting um, set of observations. Because I, I was going to ask about the the origin of the task force. You've already mentioned Michel Barney and his early experience as a regional commissioner, but um, many saw the task force, the creation of the task force, as a device for preventing a stitch up between two large countries between Germany and France. I just wondered if that perception was shared in in Dublin. But I, I just wanted to sort of roll in another question, if I if I could, which is that. But it's all—it's also been suggested, particularly by commentators in the UK, that um, this has led to a very bureaucratic approach to um, to the negotiations, and that um, and that an approach which which has prevented the two sides from identifying their mutual um, interests. I wonder what you thought about that. Well, on the question of a bureaucratic approach, I mean, I could. What do you expect? You know, <laughs> this is what the, the EU is. You know, it, it is a, a, an extraordinarily unique experiment in transnational governance, which has, which has relied on, on bureaucracy and administration and regulation. And, and I guess maybe that speaks to one of the, you know, the fundamental misunderstandings maybe for the UK about what the EU is um, and what their place in the European Union was. So I, I, I'm, I'm certainly not surprised by that approach. Um, and, and, and I don't think many other member states are surprised by that approach. It was also the first time that the EU had to confront this problem and this challenge. So there, there probably was an element of muddling through in terms of, of, of defining a process and then operationalizing that process. So who's to say if this were to happen again, the template or the, the, the pro forma might be quite different. Um, but in terms of, of it having a, an overly bureaucratic dimension, um, the single market in particular um, has key bureaucratic features, which, which are immutable, you know, and, 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 and which require protection um, and which simply aren't up for discussion or negotiation. Um, and again, I suppose that speaks to part of, 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 of what might be characterized as a, as a misunderstanding of, of, of the single market within, within the UK as well. 
So let let me give you my views. I think the EU was amazingly strategic in these negotiations from the get-go. And they used process strategically, as Mary said. Uh, They had a formula. The formula was Article 50. You shunt the UK onto the Article 50 tracks and you keep them there. And you use sequencing and the clock in your own interests. Also, disentangling membership is complex. And so it required the review of the acquis to see how Brexit would impact. But I think it's a complete misreading of, of, of the EU strategy to say that they were dominated by bureaucracy. They chose to use the available tools very effectively from their preferences and perspectives. Would it have helped the British if they had adopted a different approach? Absolutely. If they didn't do no negotiation uh, without notification, if they didn't do the sequencing within phase one, if they that would have been much easier for Britain, but not for the EU. So the EU was very single-minded in determining what its interest was. And I think what what was difficult for the UK was that when you have a seat at the table and you're a member state, you psychologically can't put yourself in third country status. And so you expect the system to treat you as it always did. And particularly the UK, which had just had the Cameron negotiations, had been an opt-out differentiated integration country. So it expected more of the same. And I I think there was a fundamental failure in London to understand what they were embarking on. And also the second fundamental problem was they had no idea what they wanted from Brexit. So I don't think it could have been any different. I I think we've ended up where one could have predicted that once the UK said no single market, no customs union, no court, you're leaving the system. And that carries the consequences that we have seen unfold. And I think the EU has done the very best it could within the terms of those British preferences to give the UK a generous deal. I was, I, was, I was interested in your answer about the task force. Um, sorry to go back to that. It was, a, it was a very wide-ranging answer. It'd be great to pick up many of the um, points you made. But um, of course, the, the um, EU had the choice of whether to sustain this uh, mechanism for the second set of negotiations, and it chose to replicate exactly that. So it shows that it was a tried and tested um, mechanism. But the question I want to ask is um, a very different one now, which is, Ireland is the country that is most exposed by the um, UK's departure economically. And I just wondered what sectors are likely to be hit the hardest um, from the, um, the 31st of December this, um, this year. Yeah, I mean, the economic, the economic impact of Brexit is, is potentially profound for Ireland. Um, now, I, I would offer something of a health warning in relation to that observation. Again, I would speak to the preparations which have been put in place in Ireland, which um, I, I, I think which have to be applauded uh, for the way in which they are trying to, to confront the worst possible impact of, of economic impact of Brexit for Ireland. Um, but there's no doubt about it. Um, it does present, uh, particularly if it's a no-deal scenario, it does present particular problems. I mean, the agri-food sector is probably the one that's most particularly exposed to, uh, to the Brexit situation. Um, I mean, and, and the figures are, are quite stark as well on that. We, we're likely to see as well less trade flow between Britain and Ireland. We're probably likely to see um, a greater diversification of trade as well um, for, for Ireland, working more with, with European markets. Um, activity at the ports um, is, is going to be impacted as well. And again, some, you know, very concrete preparations being put in place to diversify uh, and, and, and to diversify trade routes and, and to cut out the land bridge insofar as that's possible. So, so, so the economic implications of Brexit um, are, are, are potentially stark for that agri-food sector in particular. Shared electricity market on the island is another one which has, has stood out um, and, and some concerns about the cost uh, issue here, but also some concerns about the security of supply, particularly in the event of a no deal. And as I say, issues in terms of um, how this will impact on possibly reduced GDP and growth rates for Ireland um, in the years ahead. So, 
you know, all, all of the econometric studies that have been done of Brexit have spoken to the same point, that Ireland will be the most profoundly impacted of any member state in, in economic terms. And although it, it will encompass, you know, the entire gamut of the Irish economy, there are particular sectors that, that do stand out as being, um, as being more starkly impacted. But, but again, I would make the point that there has been um, preparations put in place, contingency planning and um, financial supports, massive consultation and communication efforts as well to help uh, producers and consumers to prepare for what's coming. And you know, I've always been surprised, certainly before COVID-19, I would have spent time, obviously, in Northern Ireland and moving between North and South. And I would drive from Cork to Belfast, which is a four or five hour journey. And I would change radio stations as I crossed the border. And on the Irish side of the border, there would be adverts about Brexit and about making preparations for Brexit. But that was never really replicated on, on the northern side of the border. And, and that's a very anecdotal example, I suppose. But um, I think it's, it's quite compelling for the way in which it tells the story about how proactive the Irish government um, and, and, and that all government approach has been in terms of, of preparing for, uh, for, for the worst. So Mary, you were mentioning the anecdotal dimension of crossing the border and the changes in, in uh in, in what the radios were, were, were broadcasting or not around Brexit and preparation and so on. Um, and what, yeah, more specific, well, more generally, actually, um, how, how have the perceptions of the UK changed in Ireland and have they changed? Yeah, they have most definitely changed, I think. Um, uh, this, this has been a very difficult period in British-Irish relations uh, since 2016. And, you know, that comes back on the period of, 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 of immense progress in terms of, of that relationship, sort of epitomised by the Queen's visit um, to Ireland a number of years back. But, but Brexit has marked a step change in the nature of that relationship. Um, there's, there's an imbalance in the relationship now as a consequence of Brexit and as a consequence of Ireland's positioning with the 27 EU member states or the 26 other EU member states. So I, I think in a way it has been difficult perhaps for the UK to come to terms with that new scenario. It's impacted on the British-Irish relationship at, at the political level. Um, I mean, administrative relations continue and, and they're certainly cordial and they, we, they can in no way be compared to the worst period of British-Irish relations during the Troubles. But, but they still have taken something of a battering and a bruising. And, and I think there is a job of work to be done in terms of reimagining and reinvigorating that relationship in the period from here on in. Um, at, at a public level, in terms of, of the broader public narrative, um, there's, you know, there's been elements that have, have been troubling um, in terms of perceptions of Britain um, and, and some British people, some political parties, uh, some British political leaders. Now that's reciprocated, I think, on the British side as well, because we have seen some rather offensive stereotyping of, of Ireland and, and the Irish position during the Brexit negotiations as well. But it has been one of the more troubling side effects of the Brexit process, um, that we have seen a deterioration in the relationship, which isn't just concentrated at the elite level, but has actually filtered down. Um, and again, I think from an Irish perspective, I mean, I would see this as regrettable insofar as I thought the British understood us better than they appear to have understood us. And I thought we were closer friends than actually maybe we are. So the, the Northern Ireland peace process um, was the trigger for the improvement in the relationship. Um, and the Queen's visit was sort of the highlight, perhaps, or the high point of that relationship. Um, but I, I look back on that now and I reflect on, well, how substantive was all of that? You know, how deep rooted was all of that? And, and did, did Ireland and Irish people feel it more than was necessarily the case for, for, for Britain and, and, and its people? Um, so, 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 you know, I think it's been, um, it's, it's been an, an interesting and, and revealing period in terms of the depth of the relationship, which has been rather fundamentally challenged um, by, 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 this, um, by this Brexit upheaval and disruption. I, I agree with everything Mary has said. It's been very bruising of the relationship. It's been very worrying. The real worry was the fact that London had forgotten that so soon after the Good Friday Agreement, that London had forgotten just how serious the troubles were. It was a quasi-civil war in a part of the UK, and that 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 they would do things that 
would threaten that, including the internal markets bill, is seen as frankly grotesque, that they would risk what is a fragile piece for a sovereignty kick. The Irish find it difficult to to handle English nationalism Mm. and the sovereignty kick that England is on, particularly given its imperial past. I mean, the Irish Irish are historically very literate and they do know a lot more about the history of the British Empire than perhaps is thought in British school. I think that's been bruising. But the fact that the UK looms larger for Ireland than vice versa is the large state, small state dynamic. We're small. But interestingly, and I think this is particularly significant given that we're entering 100 years, uh, the centenary of the establishment of the Irish state, everything that has happened in Brexit vindicates Irish independence, everything. There's a sense in the society that had we still been part of the UK, we'd have been taken out of the EU against our will. So that historical sense of also Brexit being a breaking of an umbilical cord uh, and also generating dynamics on the island of Ireland, the outcome of which is unclear. But it has also put Irish unification back on the agenda in ways that I would not have expected in my lifetime. Everyone was content with the settlement. And now that settlement is broken. I just would add as well to that, to all of that, that Ireland didn't want the UK to leave the European Union. And Ireland does not wish the UK ill as a consequence of this decision. And I think that's an important point to make at, at this juncture as well, that uh, you know, there, there is still an, an affection and a, and a fondness, and there are a whole plethora of links that will be maintained uh, regardless of Brexit and, and that do require to be protected. And our relationship with Britain is fundamental to sustaining peace and stability on this island. And that's acutely recognised in Ireland. Um, and, and there will be very determined efforts on the part of the Irish government, um, hopefully with the active cooperation of the British government, to maintain the conditions which can, uh, which, which can keep uh, relations on the island stable and which can maintain peace. Really interesting answers. I just wondered how you saw the, um, the, the future bilateral relationship between the island, uh, island and the UK developing in the future. And, and what difference does the Joe Biden victory make? Well, I think Joe Biden, it, it's very significant because another four years of Trump, uh, Trump hated the EU, whereas Biden will reinvigorate transatlantic relations and the relationship between the EU and the US. There's no doubt about that. And the EU has been very smart. They've gone to Washington with their paper very quickly uh, and Biden will reciprocate. Uh, He also protects the Good Friday Agreement against any bad behaviour. Although I must say that I think that the events of the last two weeks where in the joint committee, there has been agreement on how to implement the Northern Ireland Protocol. I think that's really significant. Uh, I think that will take the heat out of the, the tension. I think that there will be uh, a determined... Uh, the Irish are very happy that Ireland is not an issue in the end game. That the internal markets bill is off the table, that the joint committee uh, has done its work and done it very well. And the argument that I have heard from people who are very close is that Gove understood that the uh, internal market bill was a known goal, that it really damaged the reputation of the UK in terms of international law and credibility, and that people have been emphasising to him just how serious no deal is. So he has worked on the joint committee uh, to de-dramatise, to find solutions, to be solution-oriented. And I think if if the experience of the joint committee post an EU-UK uh, agreement if, if the joint committee of the future relationship could work in the same way, then I think you could see the heat leaving Brexit in terms of the practical day-to-day relationships pretty over the next six to eight months. If, on the other hand, the joint committee becomes highly, uh, highly conflicted and contested, 
then this is going to be a nightmare. Yeah, and I think on that point, um, the Irish government has moved to create um, structures and strategies which will help to buttress the British-Irish relationship um, and North-South relations as well. Um, Taoiseach Micheál Martin has created what's called a shared island unit within his own department, the Department of the Taoiseach. Now, in many ways, this is about confronting some of the narrative emerging around uh, possible Irish unity in the future. But the position that the Taoiseach has taken is that the Good Friday Agreement is the basis for relations on the island and between Britain and Ireland. And the Shared Island Unit aims to uh, protect and, and harness those institutions in, in the short to medium term. So there is an emphasis on restoring the British-Irish relationship and uh, creating structures which will allow that to happen. Um, and that's coming from the top. Um, and it's a position which is shared by the vast majority of political parties on the island of Ireland, that um, an Irish unity referendum is not in the best interests of the state in the short to medium term. Um, and that this is, is an alternative mechanism for ensuring that the structures created by the, the Good Friday Agreement are sustainable and protected into the future. Um, and uh, I think the only point to be made about that, though, is that it does depend on British reciprocity. You know, actually uh, injecting new momentum into the British-Irish relationship requires that, that Britain is equally invested in that particular venture. And uh, I suppose that, that remains somewhat unclear at this point, but, but presumably as, as we reach the Brexit endpoint, at least the endpoint of the negotiations, there will be time and space for, for the British government to, to reorient um, and to look again to uh, reimagining that relationship and, and, and supporting that relationship. It's in, it's in British interests as much as it's in Irish interests. The kind of instability that might come with the political drama around a, a unity referendum um, is something that would be um, as consequential for, for Britain yeah. as, as it would be for Ireland. I think it's also important to say that that the Dublin would also want to reassure unionism mm -hmm. because unionism has had a very tough couple of years. Uh, they had peak power. The DUP had peak power with the May government and as always, never fail to misuse their influence. And I mean that in the sense against their own strategic interests. They had an all our, they had an all UK customs arrangement and they voted against it. And now they've ended up with a border uh, in the Irish Sea and they put their faith in Johnson. They believed him when he said they could bin the customs declarations, et cetera, et cetera. And he sold them when he needed a deal for his interests. Last autumn, he sold the DUP out. And unionism has an inbuilt insecurity, mm. uh, been there historically for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so uh, it is important that both London and Dublin reassure unionism that the Good Friday Agreement is the constitutional uh, architecture and that there will be no constitutional change without the consent of the people of Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland. I think that the Irish will simply go back, as Mary said, and say the Good Friday Agreement is the architecture and it allows for within Northern Ireland, North, South and East, West, let's use it. But of course, as Mary said, it does depend on the attention and capacity and bandwidth in London, which is also going to be dealing with all of the other uh, demands of Brexit in terms of the enormous regulatory changes and the need for institution building and public policy making, etc., etc. We have to stop there, but that's been a fascinating discussion, a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to us. Thanks to our guests. Please join us for the next episode of Negotiating Brexit, Views from the Member States.